ahead, skin it. Skin that smoke wagon and see what happens. Campus of LCMSU, everyone. Who are you? I am the Chancellor. Yeah, baby. Pastor yeah. Marcus Zill. That's right. Welcome back, Steve. Good to have you with us again here in the Student Union. Oh, thank you very much, Marcus. Uh, it's been fun doing this series, and it's good to be with you again today. Dr. Stephen Hines serves as the director of Concordia Institute for Christian Studies. There's so much to talk about. The first, first session, if you go back through the archives, folks, kind of a general introduction to apologetics. Uh, second section last week, we talked about the observing apologetics as used by, by our Lord himself, as well as the apostles throughout the New Testament. Today, we're going to talk about dealing with all these pesky objections that people have. Set the framework here for us in terms of how we deal with objections. Sure. Um, this is a topic. Uh, dealing with objections, I think, has often been something that, um, at least in terms of the potential of an objection being raised, that often has made many Christians uh, shy away uh, from witnessing their faith uh, out of fear that somehow they're going to be asked a question that they don't know the answer to, or they're going to have to face some kind of an objection that they that they're not able to handle, and they rehearse over in their mind these kind of scenarios, and they think that this would just be a terribly humiliating embarrassment, and uh, rather than face the prospect of having that happen, they opt out of. Uh, witnessing their faith to others. They're quiet. They're silent. And while it is true, and, and we're talking about how, you know, to be an effective witness really does demand two things. Number number one, it certainly demands that we, that we gain for ourselves an understanding of the faith into which we are baptized. And communication is a skill, regardless of what we're talking about. And of course, uh, with all skills, we get better by practicing doing it, and there's no substitute for that uh, in, in terms of gaining greater facility of being able to clearly communicate the hope that is within us. But, but beyond that also, I think that Christians and our, our, our listeners, uh, even on the secular campus, need not fear uh, an occasional question or challenge that can be raised. Uh, and that may come about in the context of our uh, of our witness. These situations, rather than seeing them as an occasion of embarrassment, really provide real opportunities to strengthen our claim that the gospel is to be believed not simply because we need a savior, uh, but the gospel is to be believed precisely because it is true. Mm. And that's what apologetics is really all about: is helping to clear away obstacles that block the non-Christian from giving a serious consideration to the claims of Christ, 
that is dealing with the objections. And actually, you know, the non-Christian, the average non-Christian, most all, 99% non-Christians do not sit up late at night thinking of sophisticated objections as to why they aren't Christians. I often think that there is a wonderful uh, scenario uh, in one of my favorite Westerns, which you even are aware of, uh, the Western Tombstone. Oh, uh, yes. I'm your huckleberry. And I like to think in terms of the idea as if we somehow fear that the non-Christian uh, has this sidearm with all sorts of deadly arguments uh, that simply are going to destroy our faith. And uh, uh, in Tombstone, there is this one confrontation which really uh, poses the challenge. Uh, you know, if you got uh, that thing there around your hip, go and skin that thing if you think you've got something. And, and I think apologetics is for the purpose for the Christian to arm ourselves and instead of shying away from objections, really to say to the non-Christian, you know, if you think you have some serious facts and some serious information that shows that somehow the gospel of Jesus Christ is false, well, you just bring them on the table. We want to hear them. Table, I think the phrase was skin that smoke wagon and see what happens. Exactly. You got it. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that with just a modest amount of preparation, and I really mean that, modest, most of the objections that we hear, first of all, are somewhat lame. Uh, the lamest objection is that we hear is actually not an objection. And it goes like this. It begins with the words, yeah, but what if? And then they say, yeah, but what if? You can't object with a hypothetical. <laughs> okay. In other words, that's a hypothetical question. Right. And a hypothetical question simply deserves a hypothetical answer. Well, <laughs> what if they just made up this? Well, then, of course, none of this is true, and Christianity is false. And then they look at you as if to say, well, there you have it. Well, there you have what? Okay. The question is, what evidence would you like to offer? What reasons would you like to offer that are credible reasons as to why nobody ought to believe this, including Christians? These are the kinds of things that I think we ought to invite, okay? And maybe we can spend just a few moments here this morning with the time that we have, Marcus, and, and, and talk of a couple of these things. One of the objections that is often raised in one form or another, or at least it has been for really hundreds of years, particularly in the Western world, uh, is that uh, uh, the feeling that Christianity simply cannot be true because of somehow uh, tied up in it, uh, in part and parcel, is the belief in miraculous events. Uh, that, um, that the Christian faith proclaims things like resurrections from the dead and restoring sight from the blind, changing water into wine and so forth, as those are certainly recorded on the basis of eyewitness testimony uh, in the New Testament. But it is often thought that, well, those things are really impossible or they're highly unlikely. They're, they're highly suspect. Because all the things that we've learned in this world by, from modern science and the belief 
as if somehow modern science and everything that we've come to understand about the natural order has ruled out the likelihood that miracles have ever occurred. But believing that supposedly the reason that we find them occurring in the Bible uh, is because you have pre-scientific gullible men, such as the followers of Christ, who naively believed that supernatural miracles were common realities, and they used them to explain all sorts of things that they simply didn't understand well, things that we really understand supposedly having natural causes, uh, usually uh, things that uh, we call uh, laws of nature. And many think that that somehow renders uh, miracles unlikely to believe. Number one, we think them to be almost impossible. And number two, we just think that the biblical witnesses were incredibly superstitious, prescient scientific people who somehow saw miracles happening left and right all the time. And that just simply uh, does not do justice to what we find in the New Testament. In the New Testament, they believed in a regular natural order mm. that was just as strong as we do today. That is to say that, number one, they never expected miracles to occur. And number two, when they did occur, they oftentimes were skeptical or confused. And maybe if we might think of some examples. Sure, please. Yeah, uh, think in terms of the narrative that we have there in the first chapter of Matthew about the birth of Christ and Joseph's reaction when he learns that his betrothed Mary is with child. Notice that Joseph doesn't immediately think, my goodness, I wonder how this could have ever happened. Maybe God did it. <laughs> he has a pretty good sound understanding of the normal way upon which most people understand pregnancy occurring. And it is no different than how we would have that understanding today. And therefore, his believing that somehow Mary had been unfaithful and that that is why, of course, she is pregnant. In other words, simply by normal human reproductive means. And for that reason, he decides uh, to quietly put her away or divorce her. And it is only on the basis of divine testimony to the contrary, namely, that this was a supernatural act by the power of the Holy Spirit, does he stop from taking that kind of an action? In other words, he knew jolly well where babies come from. And when he finds that Mary is with one, he has just as natural a reaction as to how that occurred as anybody today. We, we might also think in terms of how they reacted in relationship to the empty tomb. Here you have Mary Magdalene who comes up to uh, anoint the body with some additional spices. She finds that the stone has been rolled away in the early uh, uh, Sunday uh, morning hours, and she doesn't think 
even though she has heard it told by Jesus and his followers that he predicted that he would rise from the dead. But upon seeing the empty tomb, what is her conclusion? Her conclusion is that somebody stole the body. And she would like very much to the one that she thinks is the gardener, that it's really Jesus, to tell her who did this and where the body might be found. The second thing, of course, is that we think in terms of the skeptic Thomas, he doesn't immediately accept all of this, even with the eyewitness testimony of his followers. Or think of when they are in the boat with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee and a great storm comes up and the waves are beginning to splash water into the boat. The people are not coming up calmly saying to Jesus, gosh, Jesus, will you take care of this problem? They're bailing water. And they recognize that somehow more water is coming in the boat than what's going out of the boat so that they think that they're done for. And so what does Peter do when he sees Jesus sacked out in the back of the boat? He goes there with a perfectly natural response of saying, Jesus, don't you care? We're all going to die. What the heck's wrong with you? When he does still the storm, they don't sit up there and say, gosh, we knew, of course, this was was going to happen. And we were taking bets on how soon it would happen. (laughs) No, even when they see what has happened, comes that question, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. In other words, the natural order. So how do we bridge? How do we bridge this then to, uh, in terms of uh, helping the the non Christian to, to deal with the question of miracles? What what's the approach? I, I think the approach is this. First of all, is to help them to understand that there is nothing, that modern science has discovered about our world that precludes any possibility of supernatural intervention into it. Miracles can only be determined as to whether one has occurred by investigating the evidence as to whether or not they have. Hmm. We can only know if miracles can occur if we know, in fact, that they have. And we know that perhaps they cannot occur if none have never occurred. This was a kind of an argument that was made back in the 18th century by a man by the name of David Hume, which was thought to be just devastating to Christians about miracles. And that is that he wanted to ask two questions. And he asked them as if they were two different questions when actually they're the same question. Okay. He wanted to ask the question. He first wanted to ask the question, <clears throat> Do miracles, have miracles occurred? Is it reasonable to consider that they may probably have occurred as we find in the scriptures? He wanted to make that one question supposedly second from another question about the laws of nature. And the question there about the laws of nature, he simply assumes to be correct. Namely, that the laws of nature have been established namely that nature has performed all things that occur within nature on the basis of uniform experience. But we only have uniform experience 
that everything has occurred in the world on the basis of laws of nature. In other words, that nature has performed them. If we happen to know that all alleged uh, reports of miracles are false, he assumes that we have uniform experience that has established the laws of nature. He assumes that that is true and uses that as a yes to answer to the question, no, have miracles occurred? That's what we call arguing in a circle. Hmm. Or the other way in which we speak uh, of such an argument uh, is that it begs the question. Hmm. The question, have miracles have occurred? And the question of, is there uniform experience that nature has performed all things that have occurred in it are actually the same question, simply asked in two ways. Hume simply assumes the answer concerning uniform experience of the laws of nature and then uses it to answer the question, have miracles really occurred? That's begging the question. In other words, the, it is not really an argument, okay? Uh, or it's a fallacious argument at best. So we, we only know for sure that all reports, reports to the occurrence of miracles are false if we know in advance that natural law has been established by uniform experience. The work by, on miracles by C.S. Lewis is a marvelous resource. It's a small paperback, still in print, and I commend it to our listeners for helping to provide just marvelous background information uh, about how to deal with miracles. And this is just one instance of how he deals with it in this book that I think can be very helpful on this matter. Maybe we've got time for one more. What about the, uh, the, the, the question of evil, the problem of evil, the so-called problem of evil that many raise as an objection? We've got about five minutes here. Yeah. Okay, uh, very good. Uh, the objection is often raised this way. The, the question is, way, is raised, uh, why does God allow suffering and evil? Well, first of all, we want to make a distinction between suffering and evil. Okay? Sure. While suffering is, of course, extremely uncomfortable, uh, it should not be equated with evil. For instance, in open heart surgery, and some people pay big bucks to have it. Um, surgeons carve people up six ways to Sunday, and they cause such hurt and suffering that it takes large quantities of what otherwise would be illegal narcotics just to handle the pain of it all. In other words, suffering and pain is often a symptom not of harm, but of healing. So the whole question, of course, is why is suffering occurring? Can evil be at the base of it? Yes, it can, but not always. Hmm. So that's one consideration. It's very helpful. But about the question of evil just in its own right, why does God allow evil to continue to exist? And some frame out the argument this way. Well, Christians believe in a God who is on the one hand, all-powerful, but all the, on the other hand, God is also all-loving. 
But they would to say that's in contradiction with the continuing presence of evil. Evil could be explained with an all-powerful God by the fact that he isn't all-loving. In other words, he could do something about it, but he just doesn't want to. Or it could be explained by a God who is all-loving, that is, he would really like to do something uh, to remove it, but he's not all-powerful, meaning he's not able to do so. Which means that to believe in a God who is all-powerful and all, at the same time all-good and all-loving is simply not consistent with the problem of the continuance of evil in the world. How could Christians respond to this? One of the things that we need to understand, and that is that the why question, why does God permit evil to somehow have a presence unabated in this situation or that situation in the lives of these people or this person is a question, of course, that even Christians cannot answer. We don't know. Okay? So there are issues about the presence in which God allows evil to continue to reign that can be a challenge even for us Christians. Nevertheless, on the major question, first of all, is that we don't blame God for the present corrupt condition because it wasn't of his doing, it was our doing. Blaming God for the world's present corrupt condition is about as fair as blaming the architect for the condition of a house that has been gutted by fire at the hands of an arsonist. Uh, and it's not a cycle of nature. Uh, you know, uh, corn recycles. People don't. Okay. Uh, and, and farmers sure know the, the difference between a fallow field and a graveyard. Uh, but the, the point being is that it is about the problem of evil. It is about the problem of death that hangs over all of us, that is part and parcel of the message that this all-powerful, all-loving God has done something decisive about this problem of evil. And that is that there is a remedy to the problem of evil from within and without, to Je Jesus' victory over sin, death, and the devil in his cross and resurrection. And people would say, well, yeah. Now, if that's true, though, but why do we not have the solution to that problem right now? I like to say that there's two answers that we can bring softly to the non-Christian. The first one is this. If God were going to take care of the problem of evil, that is, if he were going to remove it in five minutes, first of all, he would do a complete job. He would remove all of it. And if he removed all of it in five minutes, which of us would be around in 10 minutes? Got to be careful what you ask for, huh? <laughs> the problem of evil is not just out there. It's in here. It's not just your problem or their problem, it's my problem. And it's the problem not only with what I have about other people, it's the problem that I have with myself. And if God is going to just remove evil, 
and he did a thorough job, which of us would survive that cleansing? God has a problem. He has a shelter for the problem of evil and a deliverance to the problem of death. And that is, of course, in the inheritance and the promises of this victory and this gift that comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can say, well, the reason, of course, that God did not take care of this problem a hundred years ago, at least he was waiting for me. Because if he decided to call a halt, if he called it to a halt a hundred years ago, I wouldn't be included. And maybe the reason that he hasn't taken care of the problem right now is that he's waiting for you. That's maybe where we need to stop today. Um, got one more session with, with you left. Um, session four, we're going to get more into why this apologetic task, it gets us right back to the question of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So let's pick that up next time. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Hine. Appreciate having you Thanks with us. Thanks so much, Marcus. Look forward to this last one coming up. Go ahead, skin it. Skin that smoke wagon and see what happens. That's a fact. That's a fact. Well, that's all we have time for here today. Check out lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus. We'll help.